0: Hi, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. We have some exciting news we want to share with you, and that's that Rob's newest book, The Jordan River Rules, is finally here. It's been 20 years since The Red Sea Rules was published, and since then, it's helped hundreds of thousands of people through all kinds of crises. People write letters all the time to us about what they've been through. Now, he's written this book, The Jordan River Rules, to talk about how the swollen waters of the Jordan River were held back. This time, not to help the Israelites escape the enemy, but to open the path to the promised land, a path to victory. So maybe in your life, you're shifting gears. Maybe you're accelerating or slowing down. You wonder what's next? Our lives tend to move forward in different stages. So maybe you're figuring out post pandemic life, or perhaps you've just graduated, or had a baby, or a change in career, or even you've lost a loved one. The message of the Jordan River Rules is that everything in your life so far, has been God's preparation for stronger days ahead. Now it's time to move onward towards all the promises he has in store for you. You can search on Amazon for the Jordan River Rules to find the book and its accompanying study guide, which is meant for individual or group study. Or you can visit robertjmorgan.com. Use the code jrr to save 10% off the book, the study guide, or the online study videos. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan.
1: And hello, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to my series of studies in the book of Acts called Unstoppable, which is exactly what the gospel is. The Bible says in the book of Acts that if this work is from the Lord, it cannot be stopped. And so that's um, the theme of this series of studies. And we're coming to chapter 18. Let me tell you something, when I study the Bible or when I am engaged in a writing project, I very often put on soft background music, and I have many kinds that I listen to, but one of my favorites, it has to do with piano hymns, just very quiet piano music hymns or uh, spiritual songs, maybe contemporary Christian songs, but I love that touch of the piano. There is nothing like a real piano. Those ivory keys have a magic to them. And the three people that I listen to a lot, Jeff Bennett, who's a friend of mine and a very gifted pianist, and he has a new album out, I'd like for you to check it out, called Playing the Hymns. Uh, Sam Whitmire is another extraordinary pianist, and I love listening to Jonathan Reed. So I'm just giving you a little heads up there. If you want to listen to some wonderful piano, Uh, Christian piano music, check out those three guys. I was listening to them as I developed this message from the book of uh, Acts and chapter 18. Let me review very quickly for you where we are. The Apostle Paul is on his second missionary tour, which has been brutal, much harder than his first, harder than his third. He encountered things here that were absolutely brutal. Uh, For example, in Philippi, he and Silas were arrested. They were stripped of their clothing. They were beaten with rods until their backs were bleeding and their bodies were bloody. Uh, I can't imagine how painful every blow was. And then they were placed in the stocks in apparently an uncomfortable position. And it was this kind of trauma that followed Paul everywhere he went and when he came to Corinth finally, he got there by himself, he'd left his associates in other places to follow up with the ministries that he had started. Well, I believe that he was actually traumatized. He was a human being like you are, and when you try to use your imagination and place yourself in the situations and enduring the pain that he faced, I think any of us would have been traumatized. And he later said that he came into Corinth in fear and trembling and great weakness. But the Lord had a couple there for him, waiting for him. Aquila and Priscilla, they took him in. Paul began to preach. But I think that he was still suffering from something like a post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, He was just because, especially with the Jewish people, there was so much conflict there and there was tension around his ministry. But this is the wonderful verse that we're focusing on in this story in Acts chapter 18. It's verses 9 and 10 and 11. So, if you have your Bibles, let's go back. I'm picking up from where I left off last week. But the verses say One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Now there are five different things the Lord said to Paul in the vision that evening, and when it says the Lord, it's talking here about the Lord Jesus who came down and appeared to Paul in a vision. The first thing he said was, do not be afraid. And we talked about the many fear knots in the Bible and how important it is to remind ourselves that the most frequently recurring commandment in the Bible is that we not be afraid as we go through life. We can look up those verses and we can uh, draw strength from them as we do so. Uh, It's a very important thing. And then secondly, the Lord said to Paul, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Well, we have to persist in our testimonies. We cannot be silent in this day and age when there is so much opposition and so much anti-Christian and anti-gospel and anti-Christ rhetoric going on. We've got to stand up and speak for the gospel. Recently, I've been reading a book by Bob Griffin, who is one of Christianity's first missionary aviators, one of the first pilots to begin transporting missionaries to remote and jungle areas. Much of his work was in Ecuador, and he became friends with an Ecuadorian military official named Major Rio Frio, F-R-I-O, Frio. This major had oversight of about a third of the country Most of his territory was total jungle, and Major Frio, despite becoming friends with Bob, had no interest in hearing the gospel. And then one day the Major came to Bob and said, "'I'm at my wit's end. I've got men starving at some of our outlying military posts in the jungle. I can't get food to them. I keep trying to send it on canoes, and they keep capsizing. Can you fly food to my men?' Well, Bob wanted to help, but this was outside of his mission. He'd come to serve missionaries, not members of the Ecuadorian army. But as he prayed and thought about it, it seemed like the right thing to do, and so he began delivering food supplies all over the jungle to different outposts of the army. Well, three years passed, and Major Frio came with another request. He was being reassigned to another area, and he asked Bob to fly him to Quito, to the capital. He said, I have other ways of getting there, but I would like for you to fly me. And so the two boarded Bob's missionary aviator. And during the flight, Major Frio turned to him and asked, I would like to know what makes you tick. You could have stayed here in the United, or you could have stayed up in the United States and made a lot of money with the airlines, but you have impoverished yourself by coming here to the jungle to help us. Why do you do it? And that's when Don was able to share his testimony and the gospel with this Ecuadorian Major. He had to shout out the message of the roar of that little plane, but he had the joy of leading that military official to saving faith in Christ. And to Don's amazement, the Major just sat there in his seat over the snow-capped Andes and wept at the joy of his finding Christ as Savior. And Don later said that it took three years and the transporting of tons of rice and beans and salt and flour, but he said it was worth it. Well, the Bible tells us always to be ready to give an answer to those who ask us for a reason for the hope that's within us. Someone should ask us sooner or later, what makes you tick? And we ought to be able to tell the gospel. I am an introvert by nature, and yet I always try to seek out those with special needs, or I try to uh, seek out those special moments when I can direct the conversation toward the gospel. And so the Lord tells us, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. And thirdly, the Lord said, I am with you. That's again in Acts chapter 18 and verse 9 and 10, I am with you it says. And you'll notice in the Bible that the phrase, do not be afraid, and the phrase, I am with you, are very frequently coupled together. The two things go together. For example, Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. When Jesus came to his frightened disciples on the Sea of Galilee, what did he say? He said, it is I. Be not afraid. So try to visualize what this meant to the Apostle Paul. The Lord was saying, Paul, when you pass through the Jewish quarter of Corinth with all of the tension, some of the people there absolutely hate you. Remember that I'm just walking there beside you like a big brother. When you go into Priscilla and Aquila's shop and you work on the tents or you work on the leather, I am there doing it with you. When you walk past the demon-filled temples and shrines of all of these false gods in Corinth, I'm there with you. When you stand up to teach a small group or maybe a large group that meets together and some of the people have questions and some are skeptics or cynics, I'm there. I'm speaking too. I am there with you. From the time you awaken in the morning until you go to bed at night, you have my total companionship and then I will watch over you all evening too. I am always with you, so don't be ill at ease about anything." Now, we've got to treat ourselves like that. We've got to train ourselves like that. John Ortberg called it living the with God life. He said, when I wake up, I invite God to be with me all day. And then I try to consciously experience him walking next to me, not in magnificent worship always, but in the ordinary and in the mundane. Well, what a wonderful way of looking at it. The Lord says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. Now, the next phrase here in Acts 18 and verse 10 is, no one is going to attack you or harm you. This must have been welcome news to Paul. As tough as he was, this man was near the end of his physical endurance, and the Lord knew it. And so the Lord came down and promised him that he would not be attacked or harmed as long as he stayed in the city of Corinth. So the Lord was giving him here a period of time to rehabilitate, a period of time to heal. The Lord does that to us. He makes us lie down in green pastures. Now, later on, In Jerusalem, Paul would be attacked again. The Jews would start beating him. The Romans would string him up to be flogged, even though he talked his way out of it, thank goodness, by virtue of his being a Roman citizen. But the Lord was not saying that he would never again be criticized or endangered. But the Lord was saying, here in Corinth, as long as you're in this city, no one will attack you. I guarantee it, I'll see to it. So you can you can go on your way without fear, and it's almost as though an invisible shelter or bubble fell around Paul wherever he was in the city. Uh, it allowed Paul to relax, and it allowed him to be healed physically and psychologically. I do believe that God puts a hedge around us, We see that terminology in the book of Job. Now, sometimes, as in Job's case, he may lift the hedge and allow us to be damaged in some way, but it's only within his will and to an extent that corresponds to his purposes, he may allow us to be wounded, but he always allows us to be perfectly wounded. Are you familiar with that phrase, perfectly wounded? I'd never heard it before until I read a book recently by a seal, a Navy seal, by the name of Michael Day, and he told about the time when he led his team to attack an Al-Qaeda terrorist cell near Fallujah. Day breached the door, and he was met with a hail of gunfire, and he later said, I had the sensation that my body was being slammed with a dozen sledgehammers. The room was small, he said, my night vision goggles illuminated the darkness, and I saw in clear view Four of our targets aiming at me, all of them armed with automatic weapons and all of them firing at me. He said in this strange, slow motion scene I had a mental conversation with myself and said, Hey, I'm actually getting shot right now. Those sledgehammers, smashing all of his all over his body were bullets hitting him one after another after another. Mike Day was struck by twenty seven bullets. And then he was rocked by a grenade explosion that knocked him unconscious. He was medevaced to a Baghdad hospital and then flown to Germany for treatment in an American medical center there. And the medical team in Germany described him as perfectly wounded. This is the first time that I've ever heard that phrase. What they meant was that despite all of his wounds, no bullet, no piece of shrapnel had severed a major artery or struck a vital organ, he would heal. Now, his body armor had absorbed some of the fire, especially around his chest, but his body still had 16 bullet holes in it. But, you know, he got healing. He got better. He recovered. Today, well, he continued on to equip and train Uh, Special Forces Operators, and today he's an advocate for wounded veterans and a motivational speaker, and he does an awfully lot, but he was perfectly wounded. So what I'm suggesting is that our enthroned Savior has recruited us to serve as his soldiers in these last days. We are to clad ourselves in his armor, the armor of the believer, and we are bolstered by his overcoming power, and our victory is secured. And if we are wounded, as sometimes we are in life, somehow by his providence and by his grace, we are perfectly wounded. He will perfectly heal us and restore us because the Bible says, by his stripes we are healed. And so our Lord protects us. He puts a globe of grace around us. We have his hedge of protection. And if we are wounded, we are perfectly wounded. And the one who protects us also repairs us. He will heal you. He will rehabilitate you. He will rejuvenate you. He will restore you. He will revive you. He will give you some time, as it were, in Corinth, when he says no one will attack you or hurt you in this city. You just keep on going. The Bible says, though, outwardly, We are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now, there is something very interesting here that I want to say parenthetically. If you look down at verse 12, it says that Paul was legally attacked, or in terms of accusations, he was attacked. Once, one remaining time while he was in Corinth. It says in verse 12, while Gallio was the governor or the proconsul of Achaia, that is southern Greece, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and they brought him to a place of judgment. Now, I'm mentioning this partly to show you that God kept his promise, but also partly to bring up this man, Gallio. He is a very important historical figure in the book of. Acts because he is mentioned here in the Bible, but we know a great deal about him from outside sources. He is a known figure in the history of the Roman Empire. Emperor Claudius appointed Gallio as the governor of Achaia to serve there between the dates of A.D. 51 and 52. So this is a key dating point. We know that Paul's ministry in Corinth took place about 1851 and 52. That helps us establish a chronology for the other portions of the book of Acts and indeed for the life of Paul too. This is actually the best and most accurately known date in the life of Paul. This man was called Lucius Junius Gallio and he would have been about 55 or 56 at this time because he was born in five B.C. in Cordova, Spain. He was the brother of the famous Roman writer Seneca. He became a gifted leader, and it was Claudius that appointed him to this governorship. Gallio uh, apparently left Corinth uh, in AD 56 due to ill health, and like so many others, he later ran afoul of the new, young, insane Emperor Nero, and he was forced to commit suicide in AD 65. But on this occasion, in Acts 18, Governor Gallio took his place at the judgment seat. It says here, he took his place at the judgment seat. You can see that in verse 12. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment, or the judgment seat in the Greek. It is the word bima. And this would have been an outdoor setting. We know exactly where this was. This very spot has been discovered in the ruins of Corinth. I have been there. If I could take you there right now, we could stand on the very spot of ground where Gallio stood, where Paul stood, where this tribunal was held in the open air. And later Paul would remind the Corinthian Christians that one day we will all stand before the Bema, or the judgment seat of Christ. So here they brought Paul and they accused him of uh, teaching things contrary to Judaism. But look at verse 14. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle this matter among yourselves. I will not be a judge to them. And so he dismissed the case as Paul didn't really even have a chance to speak. So it really came true here that no one in this city, not even those Jews hostile to him, so angry they wanted to bring him before the governor, not, not even on this occasion was he attacked. And in fact, their attempt to attack him provided us with a historical detail in the book of Acts that allows us to specifically date when this occurrence took place. So a very interesting little side note here, but going back to verses nine and 10, one day the Lord spoke to, or one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid. Number two, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Number three, I'm with you. Number four, no one is going to attack you or harm you. And number five, I have many people in this city. Now, what did the Lord mean? When he said he had many people in the city. Did he mean that many people had already been converted, that there were already hundreds or thousands of Christians walking around the streets of Corinth? Well, that does not seem to be the case. It appears the Lord here was speaking with divine foreknowledge. He meant at this very moment the Holy Spirit is at work in many hearts and many people will be saved during and after your ministry here, many people are going to come to Christ. I have many people who are going to make up my church who are right now in the city. I think we could translate the sense of this verse by saying, There are many people in the city who are going to come to me for salvation. And I hope you find this encouraging. It can be a very personal thing to you and me to know that the Lord is working in many lives around us in our towns, in our schools, in our places of work, in our families. He has many people who are going to come to him in our various spheres of service. We may not see most of them, but God is working in more lives than we realize and directly or indirectly will have an effect on it. Just think about it like this. Imagine the Apostle Paul climbing up a nearby hill, looking down on that sprawling new city of evil, that city of 700,000 people, and knowing that God was working actively by the Holy Spirit among the people of that city unknown and unseen by Paul somewhere. There was a dad who would come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There was a mother who would hear the gospel in the marketplace. There was a child who would hear the gospel somehow in school. There was a temple prostitute who was going to be served. There was a family here, a single there, a couple there, a Jew here, a Gentile there, and the Holy Spirit was working. And through him and through the people that would be touched by him, many people would be saved during. Paul's ministry there and in the years to come. We never know when our simple witness will bear fruit in someone in whose life God is working. Once a number of years ago, when I was in the city of San Diego, I went hiking with a friend of mine named Jake. We went hiking at Torrey Pines, and it was pretty hot that day. We hiked, uh, hiked along the, uh, the, the ledge and Uh, Then we hiked down along the ocean, and we were so hot, we jumped into the cold waters of the Pacific Ocean and played around there for a while. It was a beautiful afternoon, and I love and appreciate uh, Jake for his friendship. Well, he, uh, he was married, and his wife had a baby not long after I'd been there, and they told me about it, so I sent them a book that I'd written for children. It's called Lola Mazzola's Happy Land Adventure, my John 316 book, and it's written for parents to help children to come to Christ. Well, about six years passed, and I forgot all about it. And one day Jake sent me an email and he said, My son, my six-year-old, and I were reading the book you sent, and I want you to know he started asking questions about Jesus, and I was able to lead him in childlike simplicity to faith in Jesus Christ. And you you have no idea how thrilled I was. I could not have imagined when Jake and I were hiking at Torrey Pines that I would have a little part to play in his son's salvation six years later. But God was working in that little child in the womb and in that little boy who was growing up. The Lord has people in your life, in your school, in your on your sports team, uh, in your place of employment. The Lord has people in your family. He is working there. He has people in this city. And the Bible promises that our labor and the Lord is not in vain. So this is the reassurance that the Apostle Paul received from Jesus Christ one night. Paul traumatized, troubled, tense, still hurting. Well, as he was trying to sleep, Jesus came down to him and gave him a message that was not only for him, but for you and me. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack you or hurt you because I have many people in this city. Now, I call that reassurance. Do you know what assurance is reassurance? Reassurance is assurance that times two. It is reassurance. It is reassurance tripled and quadrupled. It is when we have assurance after assurance after assurance from the Lord during the difficult times of life that help us to go forward. The Lord reassures us through his word. He uses others to reassure us. He reassures us through books and devotional materials and uh, information that that we read and listen to, he reassures us through the great hymns of the faith that I talked about earlier. He reassures us in so many ways. But he is an expert at assuring us, reassuring us, and telling us again and again, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack or harm you, because I have many people in this city. Acts chapter 18 verses nine and 10. So I hope that you'll take these words to heart. Next week, we will go on in our study, Unstoppable in the Book of Acts. Until then, check out my other resources at um, robertjmorgan.com, including a book that's coming out soon that I'm very excited about. You can find information about this soon on Amazon and on my website. It's called Great Is Thy Faithfulness. I take 52 verses about the faithfulness of God and teach about every one of them. Coming up soon, and thank you for listening to this podcast and sharing it with others. It's produced by Clearly Media, who is directed by Joshua Rowe, and the music is by Elijah Rowe. May the Lord bless you, and may he be with you until we meet again.